Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here, uh, recording this little intro before the intro in uh, Hood River, Oregon. And today I've got an awesome guest. My good friend, Dr. Susan Kleiner, is on. Uh, she is a wonderful Uber nerd, PhD, RD. Uh, you may know her from the book uh, Power Eating, which is now in its uh, fourth edition. And we primarily talk about female athletes. Uh, what happens with under-eating, um, do they actually overeat? how to find a good referral uh, network, uh, especially Dr. Kleiner is a PhD and an RD. Uh, she has a lot of great practice, both academically and working with athletes and teams. Uh, we also talk about, I got my notes here, uh, what happens with under-fueling athletes, or what's called REDS, and feeling your training, what that looks like, nutrient timing, and then after Dr. Sue gives her introduction here, we actually talk a little bit about her uh, super early work looking at steroids and steroid testing in athletes going back probably around the 90s uh, right now. So check this out. If you enjoyed this information and you want more on the area of nutrition and recovery, uh, make sure to check out the Flex Diet. Go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. And if it happens to be closed when you're listening to this, uh, hop on the waiting list. We'll give you a cool gift. You'll get on the newsletter. And as soon as it's open, uh, we'll let you know again. So uh, here you go. Here's the interview with Dr. Sue Kleiner. <laughs> Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here. Welcome to the Flex Diet Podcast. And today we have a special treat for you. My good friend, Dr. Susan Kleiner, is on the show today. She is both a PhD and an RD, so one of those super crazy <laughs> uber nerds. And not only has she done <laughs> academic stuff, she's worked with you know tons of different athletes, different teams. Um, one of the very first, I would say, practical sports nutrition books I ever bought was from her many years ago. I think I had the first edition of Power Eating. And I know I told you this before, but I remember reading it going, wow, this is like actually really good information on nutrition. Oh my gosh. And it's actually like applicable to someone because most of the stuff I read previous to that was just, you know, uber hardcore academic stuff or just other stuff on the other extreme that was just not even correct at all. And mm -hmm. like, oh, wow, so you can blend like academics and practical stuff into an actual useful source. I'm like, this is so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so thank you so much for being on the show. Greatly appreciate it. Well, it is such a pleasure and an honor to be included in your podcast, uh, oh. the, the, big nerd, <laughs> the Big Nerd Podcast. That's I love right. the... I love that. And, you know, I'm a fan of yours as well, Dr. Mike. And so, um, yeah, this is, this is great. Back in the day, it is true that um, when I got into all of this, um, no one was studying muscle uh, yeah. from the field of nutrition. And exercise physiologists were trying, but they didn't understand nutritional methodology. And so we had about a decade of useless research. And then we, um, well, and prior to that, you know, to give kudos to the military for having done the Minnesota hygiene labs yeah, studies. Yeah, a lot of those, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 
yeah, so those were the, you know, seriously bona fide studies on basically starvation and being a, out in the field as a, as a re army recruit um, and warrior. But, um, but when I got into it, I was looking at it saying, oh my God, there's just nothing here. And the folks that I knew who were lifting were using magazines as their nutrition advice that was, as you said, just, <laughs> you know, wild. And, and so yet, yet they were proving us all wrong, you know, and making amazing gains. And so then the question was, you know, is it all drugs or does diet do anything? <laughs> yeah. So that was the question of the day. <laughs> and you did one of the very early studies looking at actual anabolic steroids too. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was groundbreaking. I it's a seminal study on, um, competitive male bodybuilders and diet and drug use. Um, and I believe it may still be the largest study ever done with all competitive male bodybuilders. We had 35, yeah. uh, 18, 18 steroid group. users and 17 non-users who had either were the beginnings of, quote, natural bodybuilding or had cycled off. And we were testing everyone and everyone brought in their garbage bags full of drugs and supplements. <laughs> and, and, you know, everything from from equipoise. Um, oh, yeah. And it wasn't um, for their horse, I bet. It wasn't for their horse. <laughs> yeah. so, so, you know, for, for nickels on the on the corner or in the local Y, you could pick up whatever you needed in those days. And Dr. John Lombardo at the Cleveland Clinic was, um, was the pivotal um, professional in making my career start in that area. And um, Dr. Lombardo started the very first um, sports medicine residency for family medicine practitioners then he also created the NFL drug testing program, and he remains uh, at the, uh, working for the players union uh, in the NFL, leading that charge on on really the sort of the all medical care. And he was outstanding at that time in taking the position, uh, different than most of his medical colleagues, that steroid users deserved medical care. Mm -hmm. um, most doctors would not see or treat steroid users at the time. And he was um, trusted and beloved by the athletes in the Cleveland area and across the country at that time who, would, who found him. And he introduced me to that community and sort of gave me my bona fides. And so that was, those were some heady days. Yeah, and just for the listeners who may not know about what year was that for reference, because some people may not know what time period we're talking about. Uh, I started my research in 1983. Yeah, so very early <laughs> on. And I think at that point, yeah. a lot of things were still legal, I think. I'm trying to remember when Oh yeah, most oh, of yeah. the, it was like the 90s, late 80s, I think. But yeah. Right, when, when drug use in sports started. So I... Um, finished my PhD on uh, my research was the influence of diet and anabolic steroids on the 
cardiovascular risk factors and body composition of competitive male bodybuilders or something like that. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> uh, was the title. And um, it was all, all the data were published, multiple studies uh, published in various journals. And um, that was 1987. And I believe 1988 or 89, I spoke at ACSM. There were still these clinical presentations that were an hour and a half long. Oh, wow. And I gave, I gave a talk, an invited talk uh, on diet and anabolic steroids. Um, and, uh, and, and that's when all of the, um, Meetings were going on, looking at drug testing in sport, and what would the budget be? And so my call was, please give a sliver of <laughs> that unbelievably large budget to um, nutritional alternatives to anabolic steroids. Yeah. And that was really the beginning of the, of the launch of the field of sports nutrition, because prior to that, Nothing was better than drugs, but once drugs were outlawed yeah. and athletes began to understand there may, may be some negative risks, part of which were the outcomes of my studies on cardiovascular disease risk, we, um, we had a foothold. Uh, there was something we could offer as, an, as a safe and practical alternative, and that was then the research to see what measures and what outcomes did diet difference did diet make. And it really created the launch pad for the whole field of sports nutrition, which when I started, the term didn't even exist. My doctorate is in nutrition and human performance. Oh, and nice. <laughs> nutrition as a term was born during that, those years while I was in my PhD very, very early on. So, so it was, um, you know, kind of thanks to drug testing that we are all here today. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a roundabout way of getting to things. And, you know, one of the things as we transition to the, the topic we're going to talk about today, too, is related to more uh, female athletes and the role of nutrition and how it plays in recovery. And one of my pet peeves that I know you've seen a lot is... And I think this still goes on today is I think female athletes are obviously in some ways very different than male athletes, but in some ways very similar. And if you took uh, a male athlete and a female athlete and they were the same uh, size and you know, similar-ish body composition, not the same, there still to me seems to be this thing where females just need a lot fewer calories overall. And that to me just seems kind of crazy because i still see a lot of dialogues from you know female athletes and pretty much across the board like the amount of i'd say of them who are probably under eating is pretty crazy so i was just initially first interested do you still see a lot of female athletes just not even consuming enough calories specifically and we can get into more details from there or what you've seen related to that well yes a hundred percent males and females um, I never used to see or rarely used to see males um, under eating or under fueling yeah. on purpose. Yeah. I see more um, males now than I ever have. Yes, in that area. exactly. Yeah. But 
I believe that much of this is still related to, well, there's several things, but one is our lack of understanding of the data that we were collecting for a couple of decades from female athletes. So, so yes, I have a passion for female athletes. Not only am I one and are my daughters, <laughs> but I was a pre-Title IX girl where there were no sports per se for me. And I was actually a, a modern dancer. And that was hmm. sort of a professional goal and trained in New York, but decided to come back and do science. Um, my the, 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 What I'm talking about is that when we used to measure um, the dietary intake of elite female athletes, um, and they were predominantly, and the research in those years was predominantly um, endurance athletes, mm -hmm. runners, right? We would measure their intake and look at their performance. And because we had a lack of so many other um, uh, technological methods for measuring metabolism, there was this assumption that as we measured putting them on a metabolic cart, measuring their, their energy consumption um, of their body, so their outgo, and their intake, and they were in balance, and they were elite in their field, well, there must be something different metabolically about females than males, because by all standards of estimation, they should be burning far more calories. And so that kind of took a foothold that female athletes just don't burn calories at elite levels of performance the way men do. And that was always the sort of the guidepost of what's mm. happening with the most challenging exercise. And so it was a conundrum and it was an unanswered question, but we kind it was kind of like, well, for lack of any further information, I guess this is what we understand because the assumption, the underlying assumption was the body by nature would fuel our fundamental physiological needs for health function first. Mm. And then, and then whatever was left over is what would fuel high performance exercise or high energy output metabolism. And so we assumed that everything was going well <laughs> until we could begin to actually understand that that was the opposite of what was going on. And we started to see a decade worth of really good data on female athletes, all exclusively, the only research really that has come out abundantly on the female athlete, which is energy needs, yeah. which are the most important. And, and, it, and these data, these researchers, among them, many of those who sort of started the, 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 um, the, the committee in ACSM, many female scientists who were studying the female athletes, and, and they saw that actually the body will fuel the greatest metabolic need first, and then whatever is left over is used, or the, it is the energy available to fuel our basic physiological needs and that are not primary. So things like 
bone mineral metabolism, reproductive function, immune function, everything else that you can think of, skin, hair, and nails, all kinds of things that we know break down in the female athlete, um, from stress fractures to uh, reproductive function stopping to all kinds of things that stop um, in the underfueled female athlete it explained all of that. And so today we understand something called the principle of low energy availability, meaning that what the female athlete burns during exercise is not some enigma. <laughs> we, we know that they're burning a boatload of calories. Um, the They use up the majority of what they're eating and then there's a small fraction left over to keep the rest of their body going. And so it explains the, the frequent short careers of athletic stars um, because they so dramatically underfuel their body's basic physiological functions. Do you think from a survival standpoint that your body is thinking, oh my gosh, this crazy athlete is going out and doing X amount of work. They're determined to do that. Yeah, we don't have enough energy coming in, so we're going to kind of steal from other things that are not super acutely uh, performance-based, like uh, bone, things like that, where we can kind of steal some energy away from them in the acute sense because we have to fuel this type of performance, but obviously that's going to then lead to further issues down the road chronically in terms of a priority well, thing. Yeah. So I think if we look at it, you know, that's kind of this teleological explanation right. of your body thinking it through. But if we look at sort of evolutionary adaptation and, and historical needs and that the, 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 um, hormones that are stimulated at the beginning of exercise are no different than the hormones stimulated in fight or flight, right? Correct. And yeah, so, so, so the body is recognizing um, that, that um, there's a need to get the hell out of here. And, and so, you know, that's sort of, um, you got a tiger on your tail. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're you're not worried about bone health and immune function at that point. You're worried about going as fast as you can as quickly as possible. And so all the energy gets funneled there. Um and then um and then whatever's left over, well, if you survive, <laughs> you're going to sit down somewhere and rest and and recover and recuperate. And so um it wouldn't be a daily thing you know it wouldn't be a daily occurrence you'd be okay but we also know that you know 40,000 years ago we typically didn't live as long as we do now um, but but in any event the those systems are linked and today we're not running out of fear most of the time we're 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 choosing to run or exercise really hard and you don't get out of the blocks without cortisol Right. You yeah. don't get out of the blocks without these hormones that that have a spike and and typically release and go down. Um, so it's not an ongoing stress response. It's the fact that you are doing this high level of activity in the moment, but day after day after day after day and the demand remains high and you don't have the recovery time nor nutrition 
to to build your body back up again um, um, for the years on end that it is done. And so you you are in deficit, tremendous deficit all the time. And this is what we see uh, in the female athletes that certainly very, very commonly almost a badge of success is to lose your period. Yeah. Right. That's like, okay, now I'm doing everything right. <laughs> and thank God it stopped. Um, that is not a sign of, of good health. Um, it is a sign that right away something is wrong and you, you have, you know, you've kind of tipped the scales and now everything else goes from there. You stop, you know, first you stop taking in enough energy. You stop taking in enough carbohydrate to keep your reproductive system healthy. Now your reproductive system stops. Now your bones are going to start to diminish. Now your immune function isn't working. Now your whole metabolic system, the, the, the whole, you know, every, everything in your body associated with energy is not functioning well because it's all associated in a female body with her reproductive system. Yeah. Do you find other markers of, um, so usually what I see in those athletes is that their stress is super high, right? So I think of it as they may be okay performance wise. Like some of them can do pretty good for short periods of time, but the cost associated with that performance is just like disproportionately high. So I tell athletes, it's like if I took my little 2001 Jetta and I redlined it all the time going to the grocery store, I can get a little bit more performance out of it. Not like a high end sports car, but I can't expect the car is going to last, you know, 200,000 miles of, you know, driving like I stole it either, you know? So I think sometimes right. we get very myopic of only looking at performance and being like, oh, well, you're still performing, you're fine. And then like everything else is just kind of gone to hell in the meantime, which is. Well, and, and, the, and, the, and the experience that the woman has, and this is, this is this, you know, it, we go by our own personal experience. And typically the woman who starts to decrease, so she's been training, she's been eating well, everything's going well. She learns that she might move up to the next level in whatever she's doing by decreasing her carbohydrate and yeah. or her, her energy intake. And for a period of time, because of the alteration in power to weight ratio, they actually increase their performance yeah, temporarily. And they yeah. may temporarily. Yeah. And and the the personal experience that gets driven home is they often have an amazing year, yep. almost close to an or a competitive season, as they have reduced their energy consumption and or carbohydrate consumption. And that drives home the message that this is the way to go. And then, then things start to creep in the wrong direction, but they never assume that it's their diet. They, they have been, they've been shown, they've done the, the, the trial. They've had the positive experience of a better outcome and they, they never relook at the diet they assume their diet is perfect or as their performance starts to go down, they start to decrease their intake even more yep. because that's what worked last time. And so it is, it, 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 
it's like the like a pact with the devil. I mean, it really is astounding. And you hear this story over and over again until they end up in, in my office, right? Yeah. And then I say, <laughs> do you know, on a daily basis, you're at least a thousand calories shy. Yeah. And then Every they think you're lying to them. Right. You're like, what? That's insane. There's no way. I would get fat. <laughs> right, right, right. And so, you know, um, but, but, you know, I kind of have a reputation and, and they'll look at me. And by the time they end up here, um, they're either, I mean, really broken, yeah. really, really worried, maybe not so broken. Um, their, their experience, their athletic performance may still be good, but the rest of their life is a mess. Yeah. And, or they're coming toward the end of their performance career. And they would like to extend it. Things are starting to break down. They've been able to deal with those injuries for a decade, but now they're going to be career enders. Is there anything I can do to extend my career? And so that's a very powerful position. And now I have so many collected stories that I can say, well, here, don't take my word for it. Call this elite athlete, call that elite athlete and see what they say. And so, um, and I say, look, are you going to get fat in two weeks? Just give me two weeks. What's going to happen? Just give me two weeks. Well, you know, in three days I get a call. Oh my God, I feel so much better. My workouts (laughs) are already so much better because, because there's also a strategy to refueling a fem- an, any athlete, a man or a woman, and making sure, since you know that their workouts have been so dramatically underfueled, put the fuel around their workouts. Yeah. And then they, exp- and maybe you don't put it all in at once, but typically they are so low in carbs that, and they're, you put the carbs around their high intensity workouts, and they think, they go, you know, is this legal? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, uh, I think I'm on crack. You know, you, you hear these, it's very dramatic. And that experience overwhelms the experience that they thought they had from decreasing calories. Yeah. I, but, I, but as you, as you said, um, almost every female athlete is somewhere between an average of 800 to 1200 calories low. Low. That's not days. total. That's how much they're no. low for people on listening. Their, <laughs> on their training days. So it is as if all they're doing is fueling their training. And now they need to fuel, as we talk about this, this and, and the concept of energy availability is the way to, to determine this. It's what I use. It is very powerful. Yeah. And one of the sneaky things I've done and I don't always explain this to people, but I get, I'm sure you get interesting emails from every expert on Facebook or wherever. But they're like, oh, haven't you read any of the nutrient timing research? Don't you know that all that stuff doesn't matter? And you're talking in your cert to put carbs before and after training. And part of it, I think the thing that people don't realize, and one of the reasons I did it is based off of conversations I've had with you. Because when you're putting out general information that's not specific to the athlete that's in front of you, you're like, okay, here's all the research, here's all my experience, what is kind of the, you know, the bell curve of where I'm going to tell people to kind of go and start and then how to kind of get a little bit more specific after that. And one of the reasons I also did the carbohydrates before and after was I knew that 
half the people doing the cert are probably going to be female athletes. I know that historically female athletes are dramatically underfueling. And I also know exactly what you said. If I can get them to have some carbohydrates, especially before or during, and then they see how much better their performance is and how much better they feel, that's a much easier sell or if you're working with a trainer or a coach or things like that. Um, so a lot of times it's not just necessarily, I think, when you're thinking also as a practitioner, it's like, yes, I understand the research. Yes, I understand the limits. But it's also what are other things that you need to consider when you're making kind of a general recommendation. So maybe protein right. nutrient timing isn't, you know, the best thing to do from a research standpoint. However, adding, you know, nutrients around training probably is still a beneficial thing for other things that are related to the recommendation. Exactly. Compliance is key yes. and scientists don't have to worry about that. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so the, the key here is to, to know the person that you're working with and what is going to make a difference for them. There's nothing negative that's going to happen exactly. to them by telling them to have a recovery shake. Uh, and, and most likely in the case of a woman, uh, and again, this is a total generalization. Yeah. But um, especially someone who has some anxiety around her diet and her body and isn't wholly focused on performance as her singular goal, she will finish her workout. She will, if she doesn't have, if she doesn't think, I must, you know, I put down my weight and pick up my shake. Oh, you know, before I get into the shower, I need to have this. Um, she will, depending on the athlete, an elite athlete, now there's uh, media time. Yep. And hours go by. Then they get in the shower. And then by the time they get to food, four hours, five yep. hours could have gone by. They are in deep deficit. Yep. They may have to point. travel, they may have to get on a bus, get on a plane, who knows? Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. They may go straight from practice to travel. Yeah. So, so, and, and for the average fitness-minded woman, she's finishing her workout by the, she puts down her weight, her mind is already well out the door the next thing she's got to do, yeah. whether it's work or children or, or whatever is coming next, and, and she will forego eating until she actually recognizes that she hasn't eaten for hours. And so giving this sort of, this is your schedule, this is what you do, you are ensuring that sort of, it, it's the opportunity for nutrition. And you want to make all those opportunities as frequently as possible so that her day is managed and scheduled because if you don't then the whole plan goes out the window and a week later she goes well this doesn't work anyways because she hasn't been following it giving her you know only the well you 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 can or you can't the science maybe helps all of that <laughs> equivocation she wants your what would you do yeah what would you do if you were me? What advice would you give your daughter? What advice would you give your sister or your mom? Um, if, if she were a, an Olympic athlete, what would you do? And, and I have to tell you, and that's 
critically important, and this is a very, you know, tangential story, but it's really important. Everyone has probably been in this kind of situation. My daughter had a catastrophic ankle injury playing rugby in college. And um, the leading doctor in Washington, D.C. said surgery immediately, all these pins, nothing was broken. It was all soft tissue injuries mm. and lots of broken thing, yeah, uh, yeah. torn, lots torn, of tears. Yeah. <laughs> and and immediately, we got to get her in surgery immediately. I said, well, you're not having surgery in Washington, D.C. anyways. We're bringing you back to Seattle. And so we'll see the leading person here. The leading person here said, this can heal. Mm. You don't need surgery. And so I said, well, what would you tell her if she were an elite athlete? And he said, well, then I definitely wouldn't do surgery first. <laughs> I'd wait and see if it, if it could heal. If it doesn't, then we'll do surgery. But then we know she's compromised forever. And so that question, what would you do if, put yourself in that position. This woman is coming to you for guidance. Don't be wishy-washy. Now, there are things where we are, like, I don't know, do I need to supplement with vitamin C? Well, um, can you eat all your, your nutrition? Can you do this? Would you, would you feel better if you had a little bit of supplementation? Sure. Do we know it makes a difference? No, unless you're actually marginally or frankly deficient. Um, there's some very good data on one hand and some very good data on the other. But this is a, this is what we, she, she needs food and she needs fuel and she needs the micronutrition and macronutrition. Give it to her when she's going to actually be able to consume it and you know it will make a difference yeah and i think that's also the thing where you have to be practical because at the top of your list you know that you know adherence compliance those are going to be big things right so i've even had some you know pretty high level athletes to be like hey have a whole meal in the morning have a whole meal in the afternoon have a shake before and after training you know, because they're training, you know, like mid afternoon, normally, they just had one training session, you know, each day. I'm like, is that like the best thing ever? No, are there some other things you could possibly do better? Sure. Was it infinitely like light years ahead of what they were doing before? Absolutely. Right. right. So I think we have to figure out that one, the odds are that they were not going to sit down and eat four whole meals during the day. Anyway, they weren't doing mm -hmm. that. They had like one at best. Right, mm -hmm. And then once they get used to that, then it's like, oh, okay, let's, you know, sub this out and let's then do this, right? So in your head, you have kind of this stepwise progression where I think a lot of times we get hung up on optimal and you're like, okay, so you need grass-fed organic this, you need to hire the chef, you need to have them show up at your house. So you're like so far down a path that's not even like realistic for them. It's like they haven't eaten anything in 14 hours. Maybe they should just have a protein shake to start. <laughs> you know, it's right. like... right. Doesn't and, need to and, be overly and they will come along, right? Yes. Over time, this is not a one-shot deal. Yeah. Over time, they will become more interested in what else can I do. Yeah. It just is by nature what happens. Um, I I worked with a uh, no longer playing, but an NFL quarterback who was really getting beaten up. Didn't have enough meat on his bones. Uh, and when I came in and assessed his diet, well, he didn't, he didn't like any sense of anything in his stomach, which is very common. You, mm -hmm. you, you know, you need to be empty enough to train and quarterbacks have, you know, especially during training camp, they may have four or five training sessions in yeah. a day. 
And so depending on, you know, the different skills and drills and, and, and weight room and, and, and team play and, and all of that. And so by the time he finished his day, he was, he had eaten 1500 calories, oh. right? This is like a six foot Oof. five quarterback. So what did we do? This was way back in the day. Um, he had three, we made three shakes a day for him at different calorie levels, uh, knowing how quickly they would empty from his stomach, um, using some, some product, using some whole food, depending on what time of the day it was. He needed a minimum of 5,000 calories a day just to maintain his weight, and he was supposed to gain. Mm. And so had I said, <laughs> okay, we need to add four full meals into your day or three full meals into your day, Nothing would have happened. Yeah, exactly. So what, good, what good is that? I always say the most well-designed meal in the world is useless if no one eats it. Yeah. So, so, so giving him shakes and then telling him, okay, now at the end of your day, this is, you know, the beginning of your day, this is what would be great. At the end of your day, this is what we want you to have when you go home. And in fact, it was a funny story he was a big ice cream eater. And this is a public story. It was in the <laughs> Seattle Times or Post Intelligence or many years ago. And he, he even told the story of what a huge ice cream eater he was. And he would eat, you know, like a half a gallon of ice cream when he'd get home every night. Well, no <laughs> surprise, he was starving. Yeah. And so when I created the diet, I allowed him to have some ice cream in the evening still because, you know, who was I to say to this guy, um, go from half a gallon of ice cream or so, uh, you know, every evening to zero? Yeah. He'd say, you're a nice lady, but I'm not following <laughs> your diet, right? Well, by the end of, a, of about two weeks, he called and said, hey, doc, what can I have instead of this ice cream? I don't want it anymore. Is there another snack? Because he wasn't starving anymore. Yeah. So you have to let the nutrition do its work for you. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, related to energy availability and if there's trainers or coaches uh, listening, are there any tools or anything kind of red flags they should look out for? Because I think one of the hard parts too is even just like client awareness. It's one thing to say if you're the coach to be like, hey, I think this is going on. Um, I've kind of used a fair amount of surveys and other things to have clients fill out, not because I'm trying to be a different professional, but a lot of times I'm just trying to provoke different questions because a lot of times it's not things that they would discuss otherwise, but usually they'll fill out a form. I can be like, Hey, just fill out this questionnaire. We'll keep it on record to see what's going on. Um, so two parts of the question, is there certain tools they should use? And then what are kind of like red flags where you're like, uh Oh, I saw this, so yep, I definitely need to refer this athlete out to a different professional. So the we you had asked me about the leaf questionnaire, yeah, that was one of I was asking about yeah questionnaire. It's it's an it's an easy one because it's really short, yeah, super short, which um, is nice. <laughs> and it and it and it gets to the heart of the matter. How are you feeling? What's happening with your menstrual cycle? Yeah, and um, in detail about menstrual cycle. Um, the hard part is women who are taking any kind of hormonal um, 
medication to stop their reproductive cycle uh, can't answer at yeah. all. Yeah, um, like, I yeah. recommend strongly against completely halting uh, a period. And so, um, and there's, I'm not a physician, but they should be speaking. You should be informed a little bit. You should have colleagues who you can refer your female athletes to regarding abnormal menstrual cycle activity. And so um, there is some, what's good about the LEAF questionnaire is it will rank where your athlete is. So um, there's a certain amount of normal abnormalcy (laughs) within a menstrual cycle and you don't want to um, incorrectly label something as abnormal that is just well within the range of normal. Um, But that's why I like the LEAF questionnaire. I have used it with female athlete teams and it is, it's pretty good, I think, um, because then I, I also have other data that I'm also looking at. And frequently there will be other reasons for perhaps other than low energy um, for the problem, number one in a female athlete, um, I have found are a combination of low iron and low vitamin D. Mm. And, and so sometimes that's the crux of the issue, strongly associated with re- healthy reproductive function. And so be careful um, that you're doing a good analysis. I strongly recommend that if you suspect that there's a problem. This is well beyond the qualifications of a personal trainer. And and be connected with a sports, you know, nutritionist, dietitian who who has experience in this area and or as I said, a good sports medicine physician who has sort of gynecological experience because um this is just beyond what you can manage, but it isn't also within the focus of all sports dietitians and or all sports medicine physicians. So um, so I like the LEAF questionnaire because of that. There are several other questionnaires. They are longer, more involved. Um, they look more at eating disorders, yeah. whereas the LEAF questionnaire is not really necessarily eating disorders. The LEAF questionnaire is about energy availability and and how that is influencing um, a female, you know, female health. And so, um, so that's why I like it. It's really easy to do. It's really fast and short. And it is good to collect that data just in general. Then you have a body of information. You are comprehensive in the care of your client. And it applies, I don't know how young. Do you remember how young? Mm, I can't remember. I've used remember. it with, I, you know, it, in my practice, anyone who is has it within reproductive age. So... You know, I have used it on 15-year-olds when they've said to me, yes, I got my period when I was 12. Yeah. So so I believe that is an accurate use of, of the LEAF questionnaire. Um, otherwise, when we talk about energy availability, the things that you need to measure, um, you may not be able to measure in order to determine energy availability. And so those factors you may also need to sort of 
um, send someone out to get uh, um, uh, fat-free mass. If you can't measure fat-free mass, we're not talking about lean body mass, we're talking about fat-free mass. Um, if you have no way to measure that, I have no way to measure that. I send my clients to a local DEXA yeah. uh, where scan and where we get that data. And so you, if you have a lot of clients, you may be able to negotiate, as I have, a lower cost for my clients. And so, you know, I send teams there and so I, I, I get a better deal. Um, and at the same time, they may also be able to do, it's the same scan. They off, they, well, they, you know, they'll charge a little bit by changing a button and they get, <laughs> you get, bone you get bone density yep. as well, which is a really good Super baseline good have, yeah. for this young woman to have. So, so that's going to be key. If you, if you can't do a good diet record, if you can't do, you know, all of these things, then send someone to a specialist. Um, but and and the best trainers um, collaborate with the best specialists. I certainly, after thirty plus years in this field, I could give an exercise protocol, but I never do. I never do. I always refer to a a, a training specialist, um, exercise specialist, and um, because it it's the right thing to do. You know, it's just the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, if I could go back in time and tell myself 20 years ago, like, hey, you should spend a lot more time here. It would be spending a lot more time just finding people for a referral network that I felt comfortable with. I think even if you're a new trainer and even if you're not really sure what to do, like if you kind of know what the red flags are and you have a really good referral network, the worst possible thing that happens is you referred someone and eh, they weren't really needed that much, which is not like a right. big deal anyway. Um, but I think just doing that is helpful. Obviously, in these areas, having someone who does um, psychology, psychiatrist, uh, sports psych, right. things of that nature. That's usually like one of my top things on the list, too, because it's a lot of times you get into the eating disorders and things that are kind of wrapped up in there that one you don't really have any business trying to figure out anyway so and, then and, and when and the red flag you said what's a red flag yeah. when your client says i can't mm. i can't i can't eat more i can't and you sort of you know continue on with that questioning why not what yeah. is it um when you start to suspect there's behavioral psychiatric psychologic even social reasons why someone can't my spouse my coach my any any obstacle that they don't see a way over or around you need to refer them to a therapist or you know someone specializing in the right area i can't tell you how many times i have done that i do not treat eating disorders myself uh, I will work with folks who are um, in recovery yep. and are still with their therapist. And I can I run everything by the therapist before I talk to the client to make sure that I'm not doing anything that's going to be a trigger for this client. Um, but in the midst of it, unless you have highly specialized training, you don't want to don't think I can help this person oh, because. No. <laughs> 
because <laughs> I am so good. And many people do that. And many people who may have had an eating disorder themselves yeah. feel that they know what to do. But if you're not trained and you only have an N of one, you are not an expert. Yeah. And I had one recently where I worked with uh, the psychiatrist person and the client and so we had a basically a three-way NDA, right? So I can talk to the right. client, I can talk to the, the doctor, they can, so everybody can exchange information every which way. And it was fascinating to see for all of us, the language the athlete would use with me was different than with the doc and back and mm -hmm. forth, even though they all knew that we were talking to each other like constantly all the time, you know? So it was just, uh, it was very fascinating because... I was asking her, I'm like, is, did they say this to you? Like, oh, no, it was like the direct opposite. And then you find out that, oh, the only safe person the athlete felt they could kind of go after was me because I wasn't going to yell at them. I'm just trying to figure out what, you know, the problem is and that kind of stuff, too. So all that to say that if you don't really know what's going on and not working with another professional, it can be very hard for you to try to sift through a lot of that stuff because it's not your training and it's not your area of expertise either. So, yeah. right. The, um, so some the real trick for me, um, and I write about this in, in the new power eating, I wrote about it in power eating before then and, and people and, and prior to the new power eating, I was not working with the company Vitargo. I am no longer working with the company Vitargo. I'm back on my own. But it is a product that I have found to be extremely useful because it doesn't get, it doesn't give you stomach upset. And so I can, I mean, that's to me, that is the key of this product. And there, they have lots of good data and what it does and performance and all of that stuff. But, but the, the beauty of it is the volume you can take with zero stomach upset. And so for any athlete, great. But for these athletes who are restricting, and they may have ended up restricting not so much for weight loss, but for comfort while they're training. Mm. And there was nothing they could use that didn't, that they didn't sense was in their stomach. And so they consumed less and less and less. And maybe they're taking in a hydration product that maxes out at 10 grams of carb prior to uh, uh, their training. Uh, but And then that's all they will have had for hours of yeah. training. And so, so I say I want you to just try this product and, and the ease of increasing calories to meet their carbohydrate burn is so it's so functional. It's so applicable. And I can say, you know, just start with one scoop. It's 140 calories. Yeah. Is 140 calories going to blow you out of the water on your body weight? No. So we start with one scoop, 35 grams. They find that, wow, I actually felt better for a period of time. And then it kind of dropped off because I was still out there on the trail at two and a half hours. Yeah. So, well, what if I use more? What if I spread it out? What if I continue? You know, and so before you know it, you have added 800 calories worth of starch, no sugar, worth of starch that's very fast emptying throughout their training session. And now there's still room to add more food in, in meal form or snack form. And, and you've, 
you've really fueled their training now so that the rest of what they need, and you may have used more, but when you think about it's not total calories burned during a workout, it's what it's what's the carb burn because they probably still have enough fat on board. Yeah. Um, and so, so you look at the carb burn rate and give that to them so that everything else is left for their functional needs. And that is critically Im- important and, and assessing that, um, finding that kind of quote unquote sweet spot for them is, is critically important. And, and it has been a very, very useful tool. Sometimes you're depending on the goal of that, of that block of training. Are we, are, are, are you in, in off season and trying to lean out? Are you trying, are you in season and trying to push performance? Where are you? That will adjust what you're doing around their training and what you're doing the rest of the day. I typically never, ever, ever under fuel training ever because, well, then why train? Yeah. Like you're training to get worse. Wait a minute. What happened? (laughs) Yeah. You know, if you don't have fuel, if you're fatiguing from lack of fuel and you train another hour, you're, you're just in heavy fatigue. But if you're fatigued from, the exercise from the muscle fatigue uh, at you've maxed out, then you're getting the best training effect that you can. And so the goal is to fully fuel your training. And if you need to reduce 300 to 400 calories somewhere else in the day, do it then. And you don't need these huge calorie deficits to get the woman where she wants to go. And so to help her understand that, in a highly trained or even, you know, in anybody, a 300 calorie deficit to 400 calories is all you need to sustain a really good calorie burn and weight loss. Um, you know, unless you got two weeks and you, well, nobody's going on a cruise anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that you're trying to fit into something in two weeks. That's a whole different story yeah. of serious cutting diet. But for anything that is to be sustained, then, then, then this is, uh, it's, it's very important not to, to, to under fuel training or to create very large calorie deficits. It's very, very detrimental to the athlete. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being on here. I greatly appreciate all the the knowledge. This is awesome. And if people want more information and want to find out about you, what's the best resource for them? Where should they go? So my website is drskleiner.com, D-R-S-K-L-E-I-N-E-R.com. I'm at Power Eat uh, on Instagram and Twitter. I'm not very good. You'll all see that I'm, you know, not the social uh, media maven. trash bin fire, so... <laughs> 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 and uh and the um and uh dr susan kleiner on facebook and just to put a plug in for the journal of the issn everyone should go to jissn.com just released was the study on the gut biome and probiotics and athletes cool. and uh it's a wonderful study badly needed jissn is a very very good open access resource 
Yeah, and hopefully we'll see you at the ISSN meeting whenever it's rescheduled in fall Years sometime. Years from now, yeah, that was another fun, <laughs> fun founding experiment of mine. So, yeah. so uh, yeah, very proud of ISSN. There's Jody. Jody said hi too. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much for all your time and everything. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Take care, Mike. Yeah. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. As always, greatly appreciate it. Uh, I'm here in Hood River, so hopefully the wind isn't uh, messing this recording up too much. Uh, Here's the open access for JISSN that Dr. Sue talked about at the end, uh, the Athlete Gut Microbiota, and you can get that and download it and read it. I'd highly recommend it. Super good uh, overview of what's going on with the Athlete Gut Microbiome. And if you want more information from me, check out theflexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. If it's not open yet, you can get on the wait list, and we go through eight different interventions uh, to help you and your clients with an entire system of nutrition and recovery. Everything from protein, carbs, fat, uh, neat, such as walking around, getting some movement. I did my short little run on the trails here this morning. I'm going to do some kiteboarding here in the afternoon, so getting my non-exercise activity in. I also talk about uh, fasting, micronutrition, sleep. So pretty much uh, the top eight interventions you would need uh, to master recovery, especially focused on nutritional aspects of that. Uh, So that's at flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon.